Hi, everyone. This is Martin Willis with the Antique Auction Forum. Welcome to episode number 121 with Mary Miley Theobald. Today's topic is going to be on historical myths. Some of them do apply to antiques. It's a pretty fun show. Hope you enjoy it. You can follow us on Twitter or you can like us on Facebook. And those icons are right on our website, antiqueauctionforum.com. You can contact me by info at antiqueauctionforum.com. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy today's show. This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com. I have Mary Miley Theobald in Virginia on Skype. How are you doing, Mary? I'm fine, thank you. And you're a historian, and you live in Virginia. Yes, I do. And uh, I listened to one of your podcasts on the Colonial Williamsburg podcast. I thought it was great and a really interesting topic because we do, from time to time, some historical uh, podcasts here. And a lot of what we are involved in in the business certainly relates to history. So uh, they're always very popular on these shows. And... uh, can you talk a little bit about what some of your books have been, or a couple of your books have been lately, about the myths and debunking them? This is a, a real fun subject, if you ask me. It is fun, and, and of all the writing I've done in the past 30 years, this has really been the most fun book I've written. Um, I guess it got started back in 2006 when I, I visited the DAR Museum in Washington, and they had an exhibit on history myths, which they were debunking certain myths that are widely repeated at museums or historic sites, uh, national parks, city bus tours, carriage ride tours, those kind of things. Um, Myths like um, people didn't bathe back then or uh, colonial Americans thought tomatoes were poisonous or women secluded themselves indoors during pregnancy and things that that were patently not true. I, I wrote an article debunking a few myths. I thought maybe I'd find a dozen. And then um, it got a lot of attention. Um, people wrote back and said, what about this myth? What about this myth? And so I wrote a second article, started collecting them, and had enough for a book. And I'm, I, I'm still collecting. I might have enough for a second book. <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you a couple I've heard, and maybe you okay. can uh, add them or if you don't have them already. Just first of all, I want to say in this business, in the antique business, there's a lot of myths. And one I was heavily involved in, I passed it along for probably 10 years before I actually researched it and figured out uh, that it was a myth that had been passed down. And I hate to say it, but it was passed down by my father. Mm -hmm. Was in 1890, there was the McKinley Tariff Act. And at that time, every item that was imported into this country had to have a, and still does, have to have a stamp with the country of origin. And so the rumor or the myth was that most of the porcelains were coming in from China, and of course they were marked China on the bottom, so everybody called the porcelains that you eat dinner on or whatever, they started calling it China. And that was my uh, myth that I passed along. when in actuality, uh, I think I came upon a inventory of a death in the 18th century, uh, and on that it said China. 
you know, as in yeah. uh, uh, household china. And so that made me do a little research, and I found out that since porcelain originated in China, it's been a term for many years. Uh, so that was my myth I passed along. That was, I should say, one of the myths <laughs> I passed along. And before we get into some of the myths you're going to talk about, as far as passing them along, did they go from uh, continent to continent? Well, sometimes, um, with some changes, I think. Um, there's a myth in England that's been around for <clears throat> centuries that says um, on the effigies of knights that you see uh, in brass or in stone on, a say, a cathedral floor or, mm-hmm. or a church floor, um, that if you look at the knight's feet, if they're crossed, that means he went on crusade, and if they're not, then he didn't. And um, this, English historians have been trying to debunk this myth for 200 years without success. You still hear it. But that is, is much the same as the myth we hear in national parks or on city bus tours, whatever, when you see equestrian statues, and you'll hear the myth that the position of the horse's feet tells you the fate of the rider, that if one hoof is up, one leg is up, then that means the rider was wounded in battle. And if two are up, that means he was killed in battle. And if all four feet are on the ground, that means the rider survived the war. Well, this isn't true. Well, I like to say it's true one-third of the time. But um, it's the same kind of um, notion that, that, that we've passed. We don't have knights in effigy effigies of knights, but we still, we still tell the same kind of stories, that there's some secret code. I think people, people buy into it because they like a secret code. They want to know, they want to be in on the secret. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it's kind of like, what was that game you played when you were a kid? Telephone or something like that? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Whisper. And it's kind of, you keep passing along and something changes and, uh, that can evolve into a myth all on its own. Yeah. Uh, one of the, one, before we get into some of the fun myths that you're going to talk about, Besides uh, what you just said there, um, Matt is a hatter. Now, I always heard that was from Mercury Vapor when they were making the hats. Have you ever, have it, you ever looked into that one? It is. It is. Um, so that's a totally solid myth. <laughs> it's not a that, myth. Yeah, some myths are true. Yeah. Uh, Matt is a hatter comes from that expression, yes. Okay. I have one that I had heard of uh, that was an old-time myth that, of course, was debunked, you know, uh, you know, uh, over a hundred years ago, and mm-hmm. that is, um, if if someone were to travel faster than sixty miles an hour, their heart would stop. Did you ever, <laughs> Did you ever hear that one? No. Yeah, that was uh, that was a that supposedly maybe this is a myth about a myth um, was back in like the eighteenth century, and the only study they could have ever done that if someone fell off a cliff, and of course, yes, their heart would stop. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I've never heard that one, but they're, I'm learning more every day when people, people um, from museums and national parks are always sending me things that now, and they say, we heard this, or we've been saying this, is it true? And then I have to go do the research and find out. Okay, write that one down. <laughs> um, add it to my list. I'll yeah. add the China one, too. <laughs> now, can you talk about some of the most uh, entertaining myths that, you, that come to mind right now? Well, I'll, I'll tell you the one I think is in, in, the one in my book that I think is the silliest one. It um, and this does pertain to your antiques. You maybe heard in, in a 19th century home that has a staircase that turns at the landing. You know, mm-hmm. 
there, there often is a, a niche in the wall. And the myth says these are called coffin corners and that they were built in to allow people to get the coffin downstairs and turn the corner because you couldn't get a big coffin around the, the corner. And, the, and the, the justification for this is, the explanation is that people died at home in their beds in those days, not in a hospital. And the bedrooms were often upstairs. And so to get the coffin downstairs, they needed to build this coffin niche, the coffin going around the corner. Well, this is the silliest thing I ever heard. If anybody dies in their bed upstairs, you take the body downstairs, put it in a coffin, you don't carry a coffin up. Put the body in and carry the coffin down. Yeah, coffin weighs a bit by itself. That is pretty funny. It does, but you will still hear in 19th century homes, people will refer to these as coffin corners when they're just decorative niches for a a vase or a bust or a lovely flower arrangement or something. Now, there is the Irish wake tables, which was a table that they actually put the, the coffin on, and they used it for dining afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I know that I have heard certain myths about um, doorways and things like that when it came to, you know, uh, the coffins going out and, you know, they had to build, you know, doorways in a manner where it'd be easy to get a coffin through the door. That's silly. Yeah. Well, yeah. No sense at all. But some, some myths make us feel superior. Um, myths like, oh, the Indians sold Manhattan for $24. For worthless beads, mm-hmm. you know, well, the stupid Indians, we feel so much smarter than that. But it's certainly not true. Uh, the, the Indians, if they weren't selling anything because they had no concept of, of ownership of land any more than ownership of air, and they were accepting presents and offering to share probably. Um, or, or the idea that colonial Americans thought tomatoes were poisonous. You know, well, we feel superior about that. Because we know better, and weren't they foolish? Well, no, they weren't. They're just as smart as we were. We are. Right. Mm-hmm. I believe that. And just going back to the Manhattan, um, mm-hmm. if I recall, that was in my childhood history book in school. It probably was. There are plenty of these myths in history books. I found several. I, re- I reviewed a fourth-grade history book and found four of them. Wow. Can you give some examples? Do you know right off the top? Uh, one of them was about the massacre of 1622, uh, Virginia massacre that is, is often called the Good Friday Massacre. If you go online, you, you type in Good Friday Massacre, you're going to find a whole lot of information about it. The trouble is, Easter that year fell a month after the massacre. It wasn't, didn't happen on Good Friday. It was a mistake made by a 19th century clergyman who was putting a religious uh, bend on the story, figuring that it had religious connotations, that the Indians were attacking to show their disdain for the uh, religion that was being crammed down their throats. Um, but it, it, you know, the calendar doesn't uh, support this theory, <laughs> but, but you'll find that in textbooks today. Yeah, it's kind of like when history is passed on, um, you know, it becomes very solid a lot of the times, you know, um, especially when it's in, like, the written word. Yes, yeah. yes. I mean, they had a, they had a myth that said uh, 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 men wore wigs in the 18th century, or all men or most men, or hardly any men wore wigs in the 18th century. They estimate about maybe 2 to 5%. 
Uh, the, uh, like the powdered wigs you're talking yeah. about? Powdered or unpowdered. Just. Yeah. Was that uh, like for, uh, do you know the reason that they, the 2% whatever did wear them? Um, it was a fashion. It was expensive. Uh-huh. It was fashion. Um, some men liked, it, it was a matter of taste though. Like Thomas Jefferson uh, seldom, if ever, wore wigs. Um, preferred his own hair fixed. Uh, but mm-hmm. it, it was just not something that very many people did, very many men did, or women for that matter. Now, would it have, now Thomas Jefferson had a pretty full head of hair. Would it have anything to do with uh, a balding like uh, Adams or anyone like that? No, no, no it didn't. Um, it was just fashion. And, and if you wore a wig regularly, you shaved your head because it fit better that way. <laughs> wow, interesting. I believe you had one of the myths were about fire screen. This fire screen is oftentimes in, you know, in, in an auction, a very desirable piece that will sell for good money. So, um, fire screens, the myth says that the fire screen was placed between the lady and the fire so that her wax makeup wouldn't melt. Um, makes sense. It's logical, but, uh, fire screens were purely decorative. They were only found in well-to-do homes, as shown by inventories, studies of inventories. And uh, women didn't wear, women didn't wear makeup, didn't wear any kind of makeup. They certainly didn't put wax on their face. (laughs) Um, And you can, we know this from looking at um, household management books that tend to have recipes for making your own creams and and facial, anything to do with um, skincare. Mm -hmm. But Women didn't wear makeup, and we know that from the fact that so many European travelers remarked on it. Maybe the upper-class women in France, whatever, wore makeup, but not here. Now, I also heard something slightly related, that a wing chair's mm. total uh, design and construction was to keep the drafts out. Have you ever heard that one? Haven't re- yes, I have heard it, and I haven't researched it. So um, it... It has a ring of truth to it, but I haven't. I can't. Uh, I can't say on that one. Okay, put that on the list. I tell you, I can tell you the one, another chair one about the um, roundabout chair, oh, or it's basically a corner chair. It's called a corner a roundabout. chair, yeah. right? And and then the myth says, and we've we've heard this in our own. Um, I heard this recently in the governor's mansion in Richmond uh, that the chair was invented that so that it would make it easier for men with swords to sit down. And that's just not true. That, that chair, as you know, from antique, from the knowledge of antiques, um, came into fashion sort of in the, I think it's the early part of the 1700s and kind of went out by the end. And it, it really had, it was more of a man's chair. It's often called a, what, a smoking chair, a writing chair, uh, things that were men, manly things to do. Mm. Um, and I've talked to a number of reenactors who say it's actually harder to sit in that chair with a sword. They've tried it. But the fact of the matter is men with swords didn't, I mean, men didn't wear swords indoors. So why would you need a chair to sit on? I mean, it, it just, it, the two didn't intercept. So, mm-hmm. so it's, it's not true. It's not true. It's a commonly heard myth though. Yeah. Yeah. Can you go into some of the other ones that are common out there that you, we hear a lot? Oh gosh. Um, well the title of the book being death by petticoat, um, the, the petticoat. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I know. I thought that was cute. <laughs> um, the, um, petticoat being another 
word for the long skirt that women wore in the 18th century, 17th, 18th centuries. Um, the myth says that you will, and you will hear this in particularly in New England, in kitchens and all that, that the most common cause of death for women was burning to death when their petticoat got brushed against the fire in the hearth. And this is um, a horrific way to die. And I'm, there certainly were people who did die by burning, but it was rare. Uh, the most common cause of death for women was not childbirth either. It was disease. Mm. Yeah, I know disease took, you know, you look back like at the Civil War, most of the men that died of the 600,000, you know, a large portion of them was disease. Right. Yeah, it's right. pretty amazing. Uh, let me think of some that have to do with uh, antiques. One is the uh, quilt, this, the quilt designs, that they are secret codes to um, help escaping slaves through the Underground Railroad. If you ever say this, I will come to haunt you. <laughs> I haven't heard that one, but that's good. Oh, no. Well, it's, it's actually fairly recent. Um, it started, I think, in the 1980, about 30 years ago. And it's very complicated. It would take, you know, a, a show of its own just to um, go through it. But the, the myth says that the patterns of quilt patterns, that slaves made these quilt patterns to, to give secret messages about escaping or... You know, go north is the flying geese pattern because geese flew north. Well, who needs to sew a quilt that's to say go north? You know, that seems like a lot of work. Go north, you just say it. Um, and there, there, well, there are many, many patterns of many quilt patterns that are supposedly part of this story, but they didn't even exist until the 1920s. Uh, they're relatively new quilt patterns. So there are just all kinds of reasons that this is bunk. But there are people making a good bit of money off it, selling quilts that are you know, supposedly underground railroad secret code quilts. So I, they don't want to hear the end of that one. <laughs> well, I just thought of something. It's not really a myth, but had you ever heard of where the term grandfather clock had come from? Yes, um, uh, actually, that clock. was one of the myths. Oh, it is okay. That, that was one of the myths that they had at the DAR museum, um, and I, I didn't use that one in the book. But it's, um, it, yeah, it, it, the, it was not called a grandfather clock until later in the 19th century, and and they believe it did tie into that song. Right. Right. Now, the DAR is the Daughters of American Revolution. Yes. And, um, the other one I had heard was sort of a myth, is that Paul Revere was so spectacular. It, because of a poem written yes. or something, that's what made him, you know, later on, I think, I don't know when, the, I think it was a 19th century poem, that yes. made him really popular. He was just one of the people that was involved. Yes, he was, and I'm not taking anything away from Paul Revere, who was a marvelous silversmith and a, yes. and a great patriot. Um, but but it's almost a shame to give him all the credit when the credit was widespread. He he did a, a courageous thing, but so did lots of other people. But but we have similar stories here in Virginia. It's not just a Massachusetts story. It was people riding to warn the countryside about troops coming. Um, the the amusing though the myth part of it is that Paul Revere rode around shouting, the British are coming, the British are coming, because they were the British. I mean, that would have made no sense. He would have said, the regulars are coming, or uh, you know, something like that, because um, that would, it would have made, meant nothing to people 
Wow, that's something I would have never even thought of. I, I totally understand because yeah. everybody was British at yeah. that time. <laughs> yeah. And then it went into the Loyalists after uh, right. after the change. I guess it wasn't the Loyalists uh, right the start of the revolution all the way through, right? Oh, sure. Uh, there, some historians estimate that maybe a third of the population was loyal to the king and about a third wanted independence, and the other third didn't much care and was going to sit around and wait to see which way the wind blows. It's kind of like the election coming up, I think. It <laughs> probably is, and, and you might be able to say that about just you know, about almost any um, controversial subject. But yeah, you know, the, the loyalists were were always around, and many just kept quiet and stayed, and many left and went back to England or to Canada or wherever. Now, I want to talk a little bit about home construction because I had heard this or myth or rumor or whatever years ago that the balloon, what's called the balloon construction, you know, the two-by-fours, and was never meant to be a permanent house, was uh, built temporarily, and then it kind of caught on. Have you ever heard any of that? No. You haven't. What, any others pertaining to home construction in this country? Well, there's the one I call my most embarrassing myth, uh, the one I used to tell. Um, <laughs> when I was a tour guide at Colonial Williamsburg back in the 70s, um, I, I learned this from another docent. We certainly weren't trained to say it, but that's how one-way myths spread. Um, and uh, it, the, the myth says that stairs were sometimes built with one riser shorter than the rest, so it would trip up a burglar sneaking up in the middle of the night, hmm. even steps, even steps, and then boom, foot comes down hard because it's a <laughs> riser. And, you know, it made sense, but of course it's not true. Uh, the truth is that stairs are hard to build, and if you're a sixteenth of an inch off or a thirty-second of an inch off on each step, by the time you get to the top, you might be an inch off. Wow. And, what are you supposed to do? To tear, you think anybody's going to tear down a whole flight of stairs and start over? No, they're just going to have the last step a little, a little shorter. I have, I have actually been uh, like moving furniture out of a home that had a step like that. Each and every time you step up, you do the same thing. It's pretty funny. Yep. Yeah, yeah, it I is. Could, I could see how a burglar would be uh, known by doing that. Um, are there any other ones related to early construction? That you can think well, of. Well, there's the um, myth that er, the first settlers built log cabins. Right. That's um, the first settlers, whether they were Spanish in Florida, French in Canada, or English in Virginia. They did not know how to build log cabins. That wasn't the way construction went where they were from. Um, log cabins don't come into America until the Scandinavians brought them, because that is how they built them in Norway or. Sweden, um, and that would have been about in the middle 1600s. And then, because of all our forests, it was a really good idea. So, mm -hmm. it, the default house for a, a frontier, uh, the easiest, quickest thing to build. But as soon as you were into a permanent um, uh, town or something, you, you built wooden houses or brick houses. Now, I know the thatched roof, uh, some, sometimes you see, you know, uh, renderings of early settlements and a lot of times you see the thatch roof so indeed you know the european influence they were they were doing what they knew sure, mm -hmm. sure. Uh, how would you do anything else it's not like you brought a whole lot of construction manuals with you <laughs> that's right that's right were there any myths that you researched that were surprising to you that were actually true yes there were and i'm about to think of one um okay i've got one is um 
the myth that uh, some craftspeople told me about wigs were baked in loaves of bread to set the hair. And I thought, if anything's a myth, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Of course it's a myth, right? Well, when I did the research, I found that um, actually, at least I, I learned how the myth got started. I mean, yes, it's a myth in its, in its overt sense, but um, there is some truth in it. Wigs, making wigs out of human hair was hard. Uh, you, it was rather an involved process, and I won't go into it, but all the details. But when you have wet hair uh, on curlers that you're trying to set, where are you going to dry them? You aren't going to whip out your hair dryer. You're going to have to dry them in an oven. That's the only place for heat. Hmm. So they dried things in ovens. Um, then there was a style of wigs that was the frizzy style that took an extra step and you would take it to an oven where, you know, a bakery where, where they have ovens, and you would put paste around the curlers and bake it. Well, what is paste? Flour and water. Hmm. So you're actually putting flour and water paste around this bunch of curlers, which happen to be called a loaf, hmm. and, and you're putting it in the oven to set and they take it out and you crack the paste open and the curlers are there and it's frizzy and you can make your wig. So yeah, it is kind of true that they took it too far. The myth takes it too far, but it is kind of true. A lot of times in kind of what crosses over into the antique businesses, something is called something. And a lot of times, for instance, I mentioned earlier, China, uh, Mm -hmm. a lot of times something is called something and people wonder why and uh, i don't know if you can think of anything right off the bat comes to mind for me is what's called a spill vase and you know i had heard um, a, a spill vase is um it spills over easy because it's small like a bud vase when in fact spill was little pieces of wood and yeah. and p- little tiny pieces of paper that were by the fireplace mantle that people used to use to start fires with um there are a lot of things that must carry over not particularly just in the antiques but the wording always has people wondering why it's worded as such or called something can you think of anything that's called it doesn't have to be an object or anything that's called a peculiar name that we use today and wonder why it's called that well yes i I think so um the the idea that uh that when you have a piece of silver and it's stamped coin, that that means it was made from melted down coins. Mm-hmm. Coin silver was made from melted down coins. That's the myth. I have no, heard that before. Not. Yeah, it was not. That isn't to say it never ever happened. We know of a case where George Washington actually did melt down some silver coins to make some little cups, but it was rare. And coin silver is just a re- re- reference to the silver content in the piece that it was 90% silver as opposed to 92.5, which is sterling, and 90% was the same as the coins back in the days when coins actually had silver in them. And so they're saying it's, it's to tell you the standard, not the origin. Well, here's, here's what I've heard passed around in particular to coin silver. It was used as tableware and as currency. Well, that would be true because... If, if it's real silver, it, why not? You could you could actually melt it down, melt your spoons down, and pay your debt. It's not 100% silver. It's 90, but you weigh it just like you weighed coins. 
Um, people had scales. Merchants had scales so they could weigh their coins and their silver or their gold. Otherwise, you didn't know. Right. And I know in Europe, uh, for instance, the assayers' marks and, you know, as far as sterling and silver was very, very well documented for, hmm. you know, many, many years. Very yeah. interesting. I can, ha- I can tell you a, a couple myths about paintings. Oh, oh, I'd love to hear that. Art, yes. uh, the art business. Um, there's one that you hear commonly that men were posed with one hand inside their vest because it saved money. The, the um, <laughs> portrait painter would charge less if he didn't have to paint a hand. Oh, hands are the most difficult things to paint. I have heard that, yes. Hands are difficult, but... Um, that isn't why men posed, you know, Napoleon, George Washington, or whomever uh, posed with their hand inside their vest. That was just a dignified pose for men of for several hundred years. And so, so you see it a lot. But now, what, before you move on from the, the next thing, uh, I had heard something about Napoleon had some type of uh, physical issue that made him always push on his chest. When I was a kid, I had heard that. Gosh, I don't know what that's you never about. Heard that one. <laughs> no, but but if you think you know the Emperor Napoleon or King George the uh, Third were were worried about pay, paying their portrait painter. Um, oh, true. Yeah, that, that's not the issue. It has nothing to do with money. It's just a dignified pose. Yeah, about that. What's what's the other one on painting? The other one is about, this is the myth I wish were true, because it makes such sense. I'm really sad that this isn't true. The myth uh, is about folk art portraits, uh-huh. and it says that folk artists would paint the bodies and the background. Yeah, you're telling me that's not true? I'm sorry. <laughs> I've heard that for years, the I, itinerants. It makes such sense, because you can just imagine in the winter, yeah. the itinerant artist is home, can't travel, so he paints all these... Uh, bodies and backgrounds and then he loads them up on his cart come spring and goes out and all he has to do is paint the heads and it's so efficient and it, um, it, but it's just there's no documentation for it there's never been a headless portrait found um, on the other hand there are many portraits or some portraits that are just heads that haven't been finished uh-huh. and what an artist will tell you a portrait artist will tell you they that they, the face first yeah they start with the eyes first because i'm yeah. a painter yeah yeah oh well then you know you, you would never try but the reason why you know why is this myth how did it start well when you look at a piece of folk art it especially a portrait the perspective is off the the hands are too big, or the arms are too long, or the head's uh, out oversized. And it looks as if somebody was just slapping a head on a body, when it, that is really just a reflection of the um, unschooled artist. Wow. They now, were untrained. Are there any other, like, besides paintings, are there any other, like, antiques or objects you can think of that um, there are some myths about? Well, do you have you ever said the one about the fainting couch that was invented during Victorian times so that um, when a tightly corseted woman uh, felt faint, she had a place to fall? I've heard that one, yes. Yes, well, I'm afraid that that doesn't have a lot of truth to it. Um, as you probably know, the fainting, the, the, that is not a very accurate term to use for fainting couch. Those sort of... Um, daybed kind of furniture sofas have been around since uh, 
Egyptian times and Roman times. Um, and they, you know, they weren't to catch women when they fainted. There's also a myth that says in some houses, you'll hear in some houses that, um, there was a fainting room. I mean, can you imagine some woman saying, Oh, excuse me, I'm feeling faint. Would you guide me to the fainting room? I mean, you know, <laughs> it better be close by a, a day bed was just a fashionable piece of furniture. And a lot of Victorian parlors had them. That's, that's it. So where did the, the term fainting come from? Probably came from um, more like 20th century people putting our own ideas, you know, what seemed logical to us, uh, 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 imposing it on, on the past. Wow. Yeah. Like so many of them are. And, you know, there is uh, one thing I want to point out. There is a, a real misconception because of our, our technological abilities that we just assume that people were not smart or as smart as us. And I'm telling you, you know, if you really look into this, um, they were just as smart as we were probably a hundred thousand years or even, you know, keep going. Um, you know, the the intelligence is just the, the knowledge of what they were learning, not passed down. But a lot of the myths are kind of along the lines of thinking that people weren't as smart as we were. Yeah, yeah. Well, like the one about the um, Victorians being so prudish that they, um, you know, would dress their naked furniture legs. Yes. We feel so superior in thinking how silly that is. Well, (laughs) I haven't seen any evidence that that ever happened. It was, again, just fashion of... I've never seen it. I mean, show show me an actual photo or print that shows um, a, a leg of a, of a table or a piano, or whatever, with um, a, a, a skirt around it. I've never seen one, and I've looked. I've looked hard. Uh, well, there, there may be the, one. Uh, there is the dressing tables. Now the dressing that's, the dressing that's tables. That's a skirt. Yeah. Yes, had, were skirted. And we do that today. I mean, we put a skirt uh, around a, a tablecloth on a table that goes all the way to the ground or something. Mm-hmm. That's from the top to the ground. So you're saying during Victorian times, they didn't have, they didn't cover the legs of furniture. No, no, I haven't. I mean, that's one I haven't, I've looked and looked and I haven't seen a single uh, example in any photograph of any Victorian interior um, that, that shows that. Um, I think it came, well, I, I know it came from a, um, a book uh, Frederick Marriott, who was an English traveler, and he was sort of a satirist, and he made fun of the Americans and, and how prudish they were. And this would be about the 1830s, 1840s. And he was poking fun by saying, oh, I went to a girl's school, and the mistress of the girl's school was such a, um, a fuss budget or whatever that she dressed all the... Um, the pianos with little trousers and little skirts or whatever. So they wouldn't see any legs. So he's making fun of it. Ah, uh-huh. And I think that may have led to the idea that he was serious, that, that this really did happen. Yeah. If it did happen, it's rare. It, it certainly isn't typical. Do you have another example of furniture in, in earlier times? Yeah. I'm thinking of um, the uh, petticoat mirrors. Uh, You probably call these pier tables. I mean, correctly, they would be called pier tables. Mm -hmm. And there's often a mirror below. Lower side. Uh Yeah. And the myth says that these um, were called petticoat mirrors because their purpose was 
so that women could make sure their petticoat wasn't showing and they could walk by the mirror and check. Mm-hmm. Well, that isn't the purpose. It was a, a, a light reflection purpose. Uh, but um, I've had some friends who work in costume at Victorian historic houses, and they say, actually, you can't look at your petticoat in those mirrors. The way they're tilted, you'd have to get you know so far back. You'd be outside the house to, to get a good good angle on it because that's so it wasn't really possible to to see your petticoat but mm. it makes sense today so we we repeat it and we think it's true yeah we're about ready to wrap this up and i just wanted to know could you have uh, one more you can throw at us well i'll give you one that's really commonly heard okay. um, if this is about food uh, that cooks were using spices to mask the flavor and odors yes. of rotting food. You hear rotting meat. Right, usually. right. Mm-hmm. And that's what, that was why they wanted spices. Um, sometimes this statement is made about the medieval era, and sometimes it's made about colonial period or even up to you know, the 19th century. But in any case, it's, it's false. The spices that um, we consider common today, like pepper, um, were really, really expensive because they came from the Spice Islands, which would be like Indonesia and Sri Lanka and such. And nutmeg, cinnamon, cloves, only the very wealthiest people could have afforded these kind of uh, spices. These are not the kind of people who eat rotting meat. (laughs) So spices were so valuable, they were kept in little locked cupboards. They weren't used... They were, you know, used very sparingly not to cover up rotting meat. I have heard that some spices were more valuable than gold. I've heard that term before. I think before. that's true. Just one that I have heard that just came to mind, sort of along those lines, mm-hmm. is that, um, you know, in early times that people wouldn't bathe all winter long. Oh, right. Is yeah. that is that actually true? Well, probably for some people, uh-huh. <laughs> but um, that, that's the myth that says people didn't bathe back then, whatever. Yeah. Um, if bathing means getting a big tub of hot water and sitting in it, then yes, people did not bathe like that in the old days, but they, they washed and they would wash in a small tub that had a few inches of water that you would sort of stand in. Or they would wash like a sponge bath uh, with the water and um, uh, the um, washstand in their bedrooms. Um, and most people washed, as far as we can tell, washed hands and face, uh, you know, daily. And and they weren't really quite as dirty as we like to think. That's another one of our ideas. Uh, you know, we're so superior today, and they were so inferior. But really, they. Most people kept pretty clean. It may be a little bit more work. When you think about how much work it is, it would have been to have a hot bath, Mm -hmm. pumping water, heating it on the stove, carrying it upstairs, and then having to reverse the process, carrying it back down, dumping it out. No, no, they didn't bathe like that, but they washed. Yeah. Well, I think that's a really good one to end it on. And can you... Tell the listening audience where they would find your your books or book, your latest book. Well, this book is Death by Petticoat, and it should be available in any Barnes & Noble or independent bookstore. And if not, it's available at Barnes & Noble online or Amazon.com, Death by Petticoat, published by the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation and Andrews McMeal Press. If you go to our website, just below this podcast will be a link to find that book. Thank you so much, 
Mary. You're very welcome. So this is Martin Willis with Mary Miley Theobald, and we're signing off. This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com.